while the rest of the world and media is breathless, we are all going to take a deep breath today and not necessarily focus on the anxiety of Wall Street and viruses and all that. We'll do that and a lot more on this week's Corey Act Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be happening. And I think you would agree the best thing is that it's happening to you and me. Breathlessly telling you what's going on in the world is certainly the temptation. That's what everyone else is doing. I get to come on here and tell you to worry because your 401k is falling through the floor. And yeah, mine is. All of ours, all right, that's that's happening. Almost all the gains of the last few few years have been lost over the last just two weeks. Yes, there is a major disease that's going around the world. There is There is some worry we can have around those things, precautions to take and plans to make, but... The attitude with which we interact with the news. With which, yes, that's the correct grammar. The attitude with which we interact with the news is going to be different today because this show comes from a very particular biblical perspective and we have a Christian call to to take precautions, to be wise with the resources God has given us, but to not be the people of panic and anxiety. Moreover, we are called to be a people of stability and peace while the world around us panics. Thank you for listening to The Corey Truax Show on his radio talk 91.9 and 92.9. Glad you're with us on Saturday morning, or if you're listening to the podcast on demand, thank you for listening. I want to start this morning with a couple announcements, and then when we get through that, I have an email from a listener I want to share with you about a pastor and how he handled kids being in the service. She also wants my opinion on that. I found a page on Twitter uh, that I've done a deep dive on, and it's probably unhealthy, but we will share that together. I do want to talk about a Christian response to the coronavirus and what's happening around us. I got a great response from a listener from last week's political quiz I want to go through. And if we have time after all that, I have some more audio to share from a recent debate I listened to. We'll see to how much of it we get to. I am also, by the way, the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood meets at 10.30 on Sunday mornings in Greenville, and that is the uh, and that information is apropos to the announcements I want to give you. Number one, my Western North Carolina friends. I know I have a couple of you that listen up in that area. On Sunday, March 22nd, Sunday, March 22nd, I will be preaching at Cornerstone Fellowship. Cornerstone Fellowship is in Waynesville, North Carolina. I believe their Sunday morning service is 10.30. So if you don't have a church home in the Western North Carolina area, it'll be great to meet you. Come on out to Cornerstone Fellowship in Waynesville, where I will be preaching. Uh, then also Easter, which I believe is the 18th, I think that's right. April the 18th or 12th. It's the it's the 12th. Uh, so yeah, Easter's the 12th. Come on out. I'll be preaching there as well. I'll be going just to my next thing in the Mark series, which is going to be the feeding of the 5,000 and some deeper meaning there too. And so you're invited out for that. So uh, that is... March 22nd at Cornerstone Fellowship in Waynesville, and then Easter Sunday, if you're not part of a church home here in the upstate, come on out to Beachwood. I'd also like to welcome Charlie, a longtime listener, I believe, uh, to, to the family of supporters. He's now supporting the show over at Anchor, and if you find enough value in this show that it's worth even a dollar, you are welcome, and it's highly appreciated for you to become a monthly supporter of the show over at the Anchor app, anchor.fm. All right, here we go. Got a message from Laura at Show at gmail.com, Show at gmail.com. She sent me some audio, but also a question. What do I think 
about having small children in the church service. Well, first, before I give you this audio, the in general, my, my, my philosophy, my thought, is that it is a good thing for children to see their parents worship. It's a good thing to see their parents in a, in a church setting. I, as a church leader, have only so much influence, but mom, dad, listen to me, no one influences your kids more than you do. No one will normalize the prioritization of the house of God than you. You having that role is the most important thing. And so have, see, a kid seeing their parents read for, uh, read the scriptures publicly if your churches do that, or to pray, or to sing the songs, to to really be intent in listening to the sermon. Yes, these are all things that it's good for your children to see because you are their number one influence, not us. And so at Beachwood, we, we love having a an integrated service in that way, that we are not separating the kids off. Now, there is certainly some wisdom to have. So I, I like having a, a service where everyone's involved. I am not saying if your church separates the kids off for other classes or things like that, they're doing anything wrong. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there's a great deal of value in everyone worshiping together in the same space. Okay, so let's be clear. I'm not necessarily criticizing the other system. Now, we have some, the other side of that is wisdom. So if your baby, in particular, is being disruptive to the level uh, that it's distracting to a bunch of people, people should have wisdom, should practice the wisdom of knowing, all right, well, this didn't work out this Sunday. Let's go on to the nursery or go out into the to the vestibule if your church has one of those, lobby area, something like that. So, Laura, my, my chief idea here is it is good for us to have our kids in the service so they can be discipled by their parents, model after their parents in the service, and also treat them like they're not like not like their kids. We want to go ahead and have them growing up and maturing, and so we want them to see the more advanced things and not. You know, I, I don't mind the phrase in the church world that's uh, Jesus on their level. Yeah, we want Jesus on every level, and you can provide that in different settings. But for that worship hour, or really for most places, it's now eighty or ninety minutes. I would I want them in the service, and so we encourage that. But I'm not calling anyone a heretic for not doing that. Now. That's my position. And then there's this. She sent me an audio that blows my mind. I'm going to play for you now a clip from a pastor in Gallatin, Tennessee, who was trying to preach his message, and you will barely hear it if you hear it at all. A baby starts to make some noise. In this church of about 300 people, this pastor found fit you know what? I'm not even going to give you the description. How about you just listen to it? Here is this pastor from Gallatin, Tennessee. Hey, ushers, can you please show them where the nursery is? I don't want to struggle with a child the whole time, so please help me out. Well, that's one way to handle it. Call out a, probably a young mother with a screaming child. She's already probably quite self-conscious about it. Call her out from the platform. You know, of all the ways to handle it, I don't think I could have ever landed there. Now, I'm going to fast forward for you because he tries to go on with the sermon, but he gets distracted by his own ruminations over what he just did. So I'm fast forwarding a little bit, and then he can't let it go. He he addresses it one more time. That's what fully avail is. 
And I broke down Philippians 121. Check this out. Philippians 121 says this. For me, living... Okay, let me stop. Just because I just did that, everybody's freaking out because I just said that. Listen, we love children. And you know, sweetie, look at me. We love kids. But if the, if the child is going to affect the whole service because the child's cranky or whatever, we do have TVs that are right out there in the, in the, in the back. So that's... There is an old adage in politics, but I think it counts in all things in business and relationships, certainly in this situation. The old adage is when you're explaining, you're losing. And he is having to explain again and again why he did what he did. Even from the stage giving her the, hey, sweetie, like in a room of that many people, like calling her out, there's got to be a better way. I immediately thought there's definitely a better way to handle this, and I'm going to give it to you in just one minute. I want to let him finish off his explanation, though. And if people get offended over that, that's okay. I'm not going to affect 250, 300 people in a room because a kid is, is crying. Listen, I love children. But see, everyone's focus is right there right now. And sweetheart, as long as she's fine, you stand there and do your thing. But, but, and, and I need you to understand, somebody else got up and walked out. That's okay. I'm not going to affect 300 people because of a crying child. That's why we have TVs in the outside. That's why we have a nursery. If you get offended over that, I'm sorry. I really am sorry, but we're not going to do that. And I know I sound like a jerk right now, but that's not. we're, we're not going to affect 300 people because of that. Let me Dude, you're making it worse. Stop talking about it. Like, if you're going to do it the first time, then move on. Focus and lock in. Okay, so first, I'll give you a lot of points here. That couldn't, uh, that probably could have been handled worse, but not much worse. Here's what should be. There should be a plan. There should be a plan in a church when you got new people, especially if you're at a larger church, you don't know who's going to be around. You should know uh, that when there is this situation, there's a crying baby, that there's an usher coming along, there is some, some volunteer, that that's their job. That's their assignment. If there's a kid who is particularly causing a distraction, well, your assignment is go to that family kindly and ask, you know, is there, can, I, can I help you? Can I help you uh, t take care of this kid? You know, can I tell you about what we're doing with, 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 with child care? So that you don't have to do it from the stage, man. Have a better plan in place. But then to you moms who have kids and services and the pastors who struggle with it. It's not bad as you think it is, guys, with the distraction. I, I am particularly bad at focusing when there is some sound distraction. But I, I've been doing this long enough where I, and when I say this, I mean speaking in front of a lot of the people, whether that be church or for work. I've been doing this a long time. And what I have found is things that I think is distracting everybody is actually only distracting a small group in the room. So you have a, a, a baby crying or a phone that goes off and you think all the people in here are distracted by it. Well, not usually. It's usually actually a smaller group and it's a distraction. And again, a, let's say it is a kid. A parent should have the wisdom to know, all right, we're not going to have this under control. It's, it's time to go ahead and move on out uh, for this period in life when the, when the kid is uncontrollable. You know, I can give you an example of this. Growing up, our church met, growing up, I mean, back in the States, not in my Ivory Coast days. We, our church met in a storefront in West Greenville. And I remember this one family, they came one time. Their kid was out of control. 
like we had pews. You remember pews? We had those. And the kid was literally, during the sermon, running laps around a pew. There was no one sitting in that pew. And so they were like, like literally running around it. Parents doing nothing about it. So parents have wisdom. Don't allow that. That is distracting to everybody. It's very loud. Have some wisdom. But for churches, have a plan so that a pastor doesn't have to do that from the from the stage. I would also add this to moms. I'm going to not get emotional about it. Guys, babies are awesome. Even when they cry. You know what a baby crying means? It does mean there's a baby. And that a church without them, that's okay if your church doesn't have them, but there does, it does mean something. It means there's life. It's a certain part of life, usually younger couples, and it's... I like hearing them. I like hearing a baby make some noise in a service. It means we got something going on here. There's life here. There's new life here. There's new things starting here. So we love those kids. And let's work hard not to let us get let ourselves get distracted by them, but... And then final thing, this was what I would say to the preacher there directly. Focus, man. Lock in. Do your job. Out preach the baby. Just you you studied, you prepped, lock in and go, bro. Don't worry about the kid. Let somebody else handle that. That's again parting part of having a plan. Uh, so to Laura, thank you for the email. You can be like Laura. You can write to the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. If you have thoughts or stories, uh, that guy handled it poorly. But in general, I am a big fan of having your kids in the main service. When we come back, I think I want to share with you, I don't know which one we'll do first. We'll either do coronavirus first or uh, a response I got from a listener uh, around the a political quiz we took together last week. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show. I might have made a tragic mistake. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there and connect to the show. It is also highly appreciated when you share the show with others. Specifically, you can do that on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and that is helpful when you do. Here's the mistake I think I might have made. I went down a, a Twitter rabbit hole, and that's not typical of me. I have a great deal of discipline and self-control that when I can tell I'm starting to get into something too deeply, I go, nope, stop, you're getting distracted, you need to focus on the most important things. I think I mentioned on a previous week, there's a Twitter account out there right now called IFB, that's Independent Fundamental Baptist, IFB Preacher Clips. And it shows clips from Independent Fundamental Baptist church sermons that are particularly uh, not good. They are not good. And so I am getting, and they're like two-minute clips. So I am obsessed with them. I need to stop being obsessed with them. But here we are on the Corey Act Show where we do church world much more than we do political world. And so I want to share just one of those with you, a, a clip, and make some comments. So really quickly to give you some context. Independent Fundamental Baptist is not Southern Baptist. Independent Fundamental Baptist are the ones you might be thinking of the most stereotypically if you think of Southern church. So when you think of camp meetings, you think of the the more, not Pentecostal, but pretty pretty loud, uh, the, the the responses from the, the congregation is going to be uh, m- more emotional, which is not a bad thing, uh, but the, the amens and the things like that from the crowd, the, the yelling, of the, the, even like the preaching style is much more 
spit and slobber and scream and yell. Like that's their style. It's probably also the ones you think of as particularly uh, strict with their standards. So their uh, dress standards for women is no pants. You're probably going to hell if you have a tattoo. If you if you're a dude with an earring in your ear, uh, they would have looked very looked down on me great deal for my long hair. So all these traditions that they made up that aren't aren't actually scriptural, but they think they're very, very important and they take them very seriously. And so oh, they're the KJ, the only people. That's them too. Uh, that it's the, it's the only Bible. Uh, I shouldn't laugh when I say that. It's the only Bible. There's, there's no other Bible. That's their position. And so I, I could have pulled any of these clips, but I, I want to just play for you this one. I don't want to spend more than five minutes on it. We need to move, but I'm going to play for you one clip from a pastor of a church. I think he's in... He's in the Midwest somewhere. He's out in California for an independent fundamental Baptist conference, which, by the way, didn't know existed, didn't know they had conferences, and they all get together. It's it's definitely a shrinking movement. It's getting smaller and smaller, but they're big enough to have conferences. This guy was preaching a message that had primarily to do with the wells of, uh, I guess that's Jacob who dug those wells. And so the, the idea in the sermon is your fathers, your forefathers, they dug you a certain well. And how dare you change the well that they dug you? Now, I would say if you're going to apply the scripture that way, and it's kind of dicey if you should, but if you're going to apply the scripture that way, then we talk about the forefathers of the faith and the fundamentals of what we believe in doctrine. Eh, He takes that analogy a little bit further than doctrine. So let me play it for you, and then I will respond to it, and we will move on. Here is this pastor who I can't remember the name of, who's preaching at a conference out in California. And I I refuse to back up, back down, or turn around to anybody who says, well, old-time fundamentalism just doesn't work in this generation. It doesn't in your crowd. It doesn't where you hang around. It doesn't work on the internet. It doesn't work with these people who aim at nothing, hit it every Sunday. It doesn't work with them. But last time I checked it, it's still getting people getting saved. It's still getting lives changed. God's still working. Hey, somebody made a place for you. How dare you rename that well? How dare Okay, so first thing, that's an argument from pragmatism. What he's arguing is what works. And in the church world, our first discussion should not be what works. It should matter. We have some practical implications to what we do. But his argument is it works. How Whatever the definition of works is. Not it's correct, but it is something that is still working. And that should never be where we derive our methods. We derive our methods from what is right and wrong and what is scriptural. Here's a little bit more from him. Dare you rename that well? No, friend, that's wrong. No, no, we made, they made a place for us in a church. In a church where they preached the Bible and people got saved. They made a place for us where you sing the hymns and you, you, your heart was stirred by them. Are they still, by the way? He's in a section of the sermon here that is about changing terminology, like the glossary. And so he gets some of it right. Like we you talk about preaching the Bible. Yep, I'm in. Let's do that. But he, he's upset there about people that don't call themselves churches anymore. Maybe you call it a, a fellowship or call it, I don't know what people call their, the, the, the other names for church. So he's asking, why can't we say get saved? Why we got to say the, some, some of the new terms are, uh, I think the more biblical term from, that we get from the New Testament is to repent of your sin and follow after Christ. There's the word redeemed, redemption. 
I think a lot of us went away from that language saved, which, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't actually think appears in the New Testament anywhere. I mean, it's, it's language that has done the church some good over time, but it's not necessarily the scriptural language. Because it's been, uh, it's a term that, that has been so used, maybe misused, that no one really knows what it means anymore. And so we, we have some clarity from Scripture about turning from your sin and following after Christ, that, the, the idea of redemption. And so he's, that's what he's upset about, is changing the language. And so he's, what he's yelling about there, and I, I chose him because he's the least yelly. Most of them are a lot more yelly. And so uh, he's upset with people changing the terminology, not with changing any truth, but just changing what they've always done. Here's a little bit more from him, and we'll move on. What do we got to get Spanky up there with his little Jiffy Lube hairdo and doing one of these numbers with a little flannel shirt and his little hair sticking out of it? We got to get one of those. What's wrong with wearing a suit and a tie? What's wrong with this kind of stuff? I'm, I'm sorry. What, what happened? So you say, well, Brother Johnson, this is California. I know where I am. Why does he have to be called Spanky? Why do you have to call the worship leader at the modern church Spanky? That's unkind. In his Jiffy Lube haircut, I guess you just mean that he's got some gel in his hair. It, it, and then you get that the argument there, the question, what's wrong with suit and a tie? Well, sir, respectfully, nothing. I am glad for your tradition, and that's what you do. That the, but the idea here is you've, you've taken your tradition, not Bible, but your tradition, and turned it into a scriptural standard. That's the problem with this group. A thing that, uh, like you took a snapshot in time of Christianity, that snapshot in time was basically Appalachia, and the, the cultures that come out of Appalachia, Appalachia, however you say that word, in 1910s, 20s, and 30s, and you've determined that's Christianity, that's the one, the way that women dressed in America at that moment, that's how it's supposed to be for all of time. The way men's hair was at that moment is how it's supposed to be for all of time. It is as if these folks, this guy in particular, doesn't know that Christianity isn't American, that there's different standards depending on where you are on the planet. Hey, that there's been different standards of music throughout time. How on earth have you concluded that the music, you just pick almost at random, it's piano and organ. That's the music. Maybe a steel guitar if you're lucky. If you're feeling kind of crazy, maybe you get one of those jars you blow into. Like that's, that's the music. For all of time and for all of places, this is what Christianity is supposed to look like. And if you change it one bit over time... Not the scripture, but change how we've interpreted it, our, our preferences, then you've somehow apostatized in some way. And so I, I've gone deep dive into this, and I probably shouldn't have, but there's a lot of bad teaching there. And I would just highlight that. Uh, I would highlight the idea here is taking, this is what the Pharisees did. They take traditions. Oh, I'll give you an example. Here's one. Oh, what should I pick? Uh, let's pick Sabbath. Sabbath is a good one. All right, so the, the law says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Pharisees, Sadducees, not, well, Pharisees come along and say, well, here's what that looks like. And what I'm about to tell you is not exactly correct, but it's a, it's a good example. It was something like you can't walk more than half a mile that day. It's, it looks like you can't crack corn if you are in a field and eat, the, eat that corn. Like that's, it's, it's specifically, here's what remembering the Sabbath day looks like. It, it looks exactly like this, and if you're not remembering it how I remember it, then you're doing it incorrectly. It's that kind of thing. And so when you get to, well, this is how a man, <laughs> this is how a man dressed 
1920 Southern culture. And if you stop dressing like that, then you are violating Scripture. So you, Because the Bible said to wear what pertains to a man, well, we've decided what pertains to a man is defined as this one period in history from this one area on the globe. And so they take scriptural principle, they make up their own version on how to apply it, make up their own version of the standard, and then they hold us all to the standard as if they have the authority to do that. All right, I'm going to leave it alone. If you are so inclined, you can go on out there to uh, Twitter if you want. They're out there, and uh, it's called, the actual handle, like the handle you'd have to find is called uh, Fake Sermon. And then you get the individual sermon clips there. If you search for IFB preacher clips, it would be there as well. All right, we'll move on. But we will stay in the church world just a little bit longer before we get into that quiz response. Let me talk about the coronavirus. I started the show by saying we we get to be, in our cultures as Christians, voices for peace, voices against anxiety. We get to be the people that, don't have a spirit of fear, but have a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. That does not mean being being overly sanguine or burying our, our, our heads in the sand against real problems. But I'm living in the same world you're living in. I see the markets falling through the floor. I, I see infections now all of the coronavirus all over the place. I think I talk about it a lot less than everybody else because I acknowledge I know nothing. I just know nothing about infectious disease. And it does seem like very few of our leaders know anything about this particular infectious disease. We just don't have enough data to make anything predictive. I think that's what's happening with the markets. It's not that the coronavirus situation is terrible. It's that they're afraid that it's going to be because we just don't have enough data to make any real determinations. And so... What I am trying to uh, help you do, because we're all growing together, is that we're the people in these conversations, in these discussions, in our social media presences, that we are the people that aren't stoking fear. That if we're not sure something is true, we don't share it, we don't say it. That we express confidence that God is in control. And that might mean some discomfort. That might be, mean some things that we don't want to happen, happen, but that the Lord is, is, is working his purpose in the world right now through this, through this virus. And even more so, there's almost an opportunity in this. People are thinking about their own mortality right now. It is a topic of conversation, the idea of, of being sick. We, we live in a world that doesn't often think about its mortality. And now we have secular people thinking about what happens around death. That's an opportunity to have some meaningful conversations. We're now living in a world where there are people whose, whose deep security is their 401k. It is their investments. And as those discussions happen, we have the opportunity to be the folks that speak something better into them, that you are not your 401k, your security is not your money, but there's a better security that we have. This is what the Christian worldview is about. There are certainly shows out there that have Jesus on the label, but ultimately they're just a political show that's that's no different than like a Fox News or something like that. That's not this show, though. 
the real biblical worldview, when we come across the coronavirus, when we come across these stories, we have faith and trust that God knows what he's doing. We take precaution against calamity, against those things that to protect the things that God has entrusted to us and the resources that we have. And all the while, we recognize there is opportunity here for the kingdom of God. That we can point people towards something greater as they have these fears. We can, we can point people towards an eternal life, that there's a groaning we all have. Here's a universal truth the Bible would give us here that we can communicate to people. The Bible says that God didn't create a world for these viruses, and we are groaning for a world where they are gone. Romans says the earth itself groans to be renewed. Our bodies groan to be renewed. And so here we all join together with a testament that the Bible is true. We want a world without these viruses. We want a world without these deaths. We want a world without these market collapses. And it's coming. We have the promise of its coming. And that's how we can have the Christian worldview around this very difficult thing. Be people of peace. Be people of power, love, and a sound mind. Recognize people are thinking about their own mortality and that they are focusing on their own their wealth and well-being and that we can point to something greater because they are longing for what we already have, the reality of a world renewed. Now, I should at least mention this because I got, I got a, was that a Facebook message. I think it was a Facebook message that was more around the, the president's response. I have a little bit to say there and then we'll take a break. Um, I, it, this is hard, guys. I don't, uh, I have a hard time criticizing people when I can't, uh, when I have, I have trouble saying what I would have done differently. And the, I know so little about how to manage infectious diseases. I know nothing that it's hard for me to directly criticize how we've responded because I don't know what I would have done differently except for this one thing. It is an objective ill, it's an objective bad thing that the president seems to be treating this crisis in part as a campaign issue. I'm totally acknowledging the left is doing that, Democrats are doing that, that's true. It is not good that the president is doing as well, that he seems to be on Twitter a lot more than most teenagers talking about how this affects uh, how this affects the markets and how it affects uh, that, that he calls it a lot of fake news and that the the news is driving their ratings like this isn't the time for that stuff I think a, a more calming presence would actually help our markets and help the culture be be a more solid ground right now but he's out there fighting a political battle over a physical issue and that's not healthy and it's not good okay that's as far as I want to go on that I got a message criticizing the president and wanted to know why I don't talk about coronavirus more. And it's because I don't know anything about it. And I don't know how I would handle it any different, except that I would be a person who's not worried about the TV ratings and how it's affecting my reelection and the markets. I think I would be handling that a little bit more differently. You know, like an adult. That's probably how I would handle it. When we come back, I have for you a email from a listener who wants to respond to the political quiz from last week. In particular, we want to get into immigration. I want to talk about that. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show.
The best conversations are ones wherein there is respectful disagreement. And so that is what we're going to do next here on the Corey Truax Show. Thank you for joining us on His Radio Talk 91.9 and 92.9 or wherever you listen to the podcast. I am deeply grateful that you listen. So here we go. Last week, I started going through a political quiz together. And we didn't get to cover the entire political quiz, but it was responded to well. I got several responses. Maybe over the coming weeks we can get to the rest of them. But Wayne, a longtime listener and often writes into the show, which I'm grateful for. You should be like Wayne. He writes into the show. You can reach me at Show at gmail.com, Show at gmail.com, or any of the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. In particular, there was a question on that quiz that said something to the effect of, I think immigration to my country should be restricted and controlled. And I said, not restricted. I'd like more immigration, but yes, controlled. I think we should be able to pick and choose those who win the lottery of coming to America. Like Literally, we have a system where there are lotteries, and that's insane. It's insane there's a lottery system to come here. Immigration should be strategic, and it should be for the good of the country that's allowing the immigration. Wayne writes in to disagree with me. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to read a very large chunk of it. Here we go. He writes in and says, Historically, immigration built this nation and others. That table turned in 1965 with the Immigration Act that's still in effect. It took a few years for the effect to be felt, but then it began to destroy the country. Uh, You can't can't pinpoint an exact date, but probably sometime in the 1980s, it turned California blue. We ignored it as if nothing would happen. And in 2018, immigration turned Virginia blue. Uh, Real quick, Virginia went for Obama in 2012. I'm sure that is in part because of immigration. I think it's more the growth of the federal government. So what happened to Virginia is as the federal government became such a behemoth, it became one of the main employers in the country. And people that are employed by the federal government and work in D.C. live in Virginia and Maryland so I think that's more of what happened in Virginia. All right, uh, then his Wayne says, what state is next? My guess is Georgia or Texas. Um, here are the stats. In, the, in 1970, Virginia voters were 1% foreign-born. In 2018, they were 9% foreign-born, and it voted 80% for Democrats. Uh, so I get the argument here. The argument is we bring in Im- immigrants and they vote for Democrats, and therefore we shouldn't allow immigration. That's so. I just don't agree. Uh, Republicans should do a better job. Republicans should do a better job of making their arguments. And I have no affinity at all for the Democratic Party. They are destructive. They're, they are destructive force in the country. But I also don't have any affinity for Republicans. They cause destruction just a little less and sometimes a little differently. I'm, I'm as I've been saying many times here lately. I'm just for more parties. Give me more and more parties. So. Uh, I'm not going to be somebody who thinks that uh, we should have less immigration because immigrants vote Democrat. We just disagree there. We can respect differently. Uh, Next, he writes, we know the vast majority did not come from Western societies. So he says, then you are totally wrong about immigration and blind if you cannot see what is happening before your face. Furthermore, uh, he talks about standard of living. Um, He he lives down in Greenwood. Um, You don't realize you have a, a lower standard of living than I do because it's always been that way. And he's talking. he says, I'm talking about all the time you sit waiting in endless traffic and massive traffic jams around Greenville. He says it's because Greenville has too many people. And it got that way from immigration. 
The Census Bureau said that the increase between 20 or 2000 and 2010 was 93% immigrant and children they bore. I think this is just an argument about preference. I hear you that you don't like uh, all the traffic jams and all that, but I will take that trade. If, if I am getting to trade, I, I sit in traffic more, but I get a vibrant economy because you can't, you can't argue that. Greenville is the fourth fastest growing city in the country. I think we're now the 33rd or 34th largest media market. Incomes, property values, jobs. This is a good place to be living. And so, yeah, we get, we get the problems of having a bunch of people in one place. But you also get some of those benefits because, and a lot of those are cultural. So because more and more people are coming here, well, you get that downtown Greenville area that becomes much more fun. You get a lot more, a lot more entertainment. You get to have the Peace Center that will bring in musicals like, like Hamilton and bring in things like Wicked. You get to have the uh, Bon Secours Center downtown where you get the SEC Women's Basketball uh, con- uh, what's that called? Tournament. Uh, you get to have a Bon Secours where you get all the biggest concerts. So yeah, but those are just, that's not for everybody. Some folks love to live rural or very suburban. I'm of the opinion I'd rather live I'd rather live even more urban than we are. I want to have a bigger city because that's what cities provide us. Cities provide us more arts and entertainment, more cuisine from around the world. And again, that's not for everybody. That's fine. We're all different in what we value. And so uh, I would not call that a lower standard of living. Uh, all right, let's continue back to that email. Um, there, uh, here we go. If population growth is necessary to keep the economy running, how does Japan dis- seem to do so well? Given they lost 500,000 people last year, some European countries like Hungary seem to do well enough with population decline, de- uh, declines. And he says, explain that to me. Well, okay, uh, I can a little bit. They are doing okay as in their, st- their standard of living and uh, lifespans, incomes are not suffering. But we are just, we're running past them economically, and it's not particularly close when it comes to growth and in, growth in income and standard of living and average uh, square footage that you live in, ownership of cars, things like that. Like, yeah, Japan and Hungary are doing fine. They're just managing their decline. That's, part, that's just really what they're doing. They're dying countries. They're, so are we, by the way. We're a dying country, which is why we need people. They are going to manage their decline, and they, sh- they should be commended for managing their decline in a way that is not as hurtful to people. But their economic growth rate is slower than ours, and the they're in trouble over the long run if they don't start allowing some more immigration. So I, I hope that explains it some, but, I mean, recognizing they're doing fine. Comparatively, we're doing much better than they, than they are. Then there was one last thing here. There's a story told, and I want to get to the question. There it is. Okay, good question. Talking about maybe immigrants who come and start certain kinds of businesses, he asked the question, how does a nail salon help the economy? The same way that a, a hair salon or a barber helps the economy, the same way that, uh, I don't know, a tanning salon helps the economy, trade helps the economy. Now, so those things, by the way, getting your nails done, hair done, those are the first things that suffer when an economy goes bad because those are luxuries. But ask, how does a nail salon help the economy? It's trade. There's a group of women who find that, I don't know what a 
what a nail appointment costs. Let's call it 20 bucks. They think their 20 bucks is worth that service. So that place gets that 20 bucks. It employs those people. You don't, I, I would ask you this. Listen, there's a real genuine chance that this show of mine will become my full-time job in the future. What do I produce? I'm way less valuable than a nail salon, but I can make a living off of it. Guys, there's an entire industry of talkers that are just making decent little livings out there with little talk shows on YouTube. What are they producing? Well, if people find value in it, they're producing trade, they're producing value, and that's worth having. Okay, so I, I'm going to move on from that. But it's a, a healthy disagreement. I think even there's some other listeners like like you, Wayne, if you're listening today, that agree with you, that will want to restrict it more fully. We just see that differently, and I don't see the fact that they vote Democrat or we're going to get overcrowded as problems. Uh, I would just argue we need better parties for immigrants to vote for because both parties are terrible. And I would argue uh, when we bring in the rest of the world, we get to have some of their cultures as they bring other things. And I like having the entire world represented. I mean, they, I'm for assimilation, but we get that's part of what America is. We were that melting pot. We were all of the world coming together with all kinds of different cultures. There was e pluribus unum. Out of many, we are one. We've lost a lot of the we are one part. That's a problem. We need to get back to the we are one. But I still want to be e pluribus. I want to come out of many. Now, near the end of that right there, I just said, all the parties are terrible. This is a problem we have. Our political parties are just destructive, bad things. And so I want to play for you now with that very professional segue, a clip from a debate I listened to recently. You might remember, I've talked about on the show previously, I I follow a group called Intelligence Squared Debates. I love these people. They do Oxford-style debates with very intelligent people. And so it's the opposite of what you get on Fox and CNN. Everything you watch on Fox and CNN makes you dumber. The screaming matches that they have with each other, the the cross talk over each other, all that's making you dumber. This is very intelligent talk, usually an hour to hour and a half of very formal, well thought out debates with very intelligent people. And recently, they had a debate over this resolution. The claim is two cheers for two parties. And so they had two people arguing the American two party system is awesome, it's good. And two parties, two people arguing against that, saying, no, the two party system is bad. I, of course, came in with a very strong opinion. I can't stand our two-party system. So much so, I'm I'm very comfortable with incrementalism. If any of you took like a political science class in college, something like that, you would have heard of incrementalism. And incrementalism is where you're okay with not getting all of what you want at a time, that you'll take it piece by piece. And that's, uh, you know, if my ultimate goal is better parties and having more choices. I am okay with movements that say, don't vote for this or this Republican this time as the lesser of two evils, because I want the Republican Party to feel pain. I want the Democratic Party to feel pain. I want them to feel like they're not representing enough people. I want more people to get disaffected from those parties and, and, and come out of them. And so because I don't think any election is life and death, I'm very comfortable with incrementally damaging the two-party systems so that more parties can come along. Incrementalism has, by the way, worked on a lot of things. Uh, consider abortion for a minute. From 1973's Roe versus Wade decision, we have incrementally decreased the amount of abortions really successfully. 
whether that was just because of better birth control or because we then put in a, an ultrasound restriction and then restricted in the third trimester and now we're working on 20 weeks as restrictions and you get parental consent for teenage abortions and uh, can't go across state lines, take a minor, like all the different increments we've made, we've, we have diminished the amount of abortions through those increment increments. The, the, from an example from the left, it's worked really well. Healthcare for them has worked very well. Incrementally over time, they have gotten more and more socialized type of medicine. Uh, you take go back to the Obamacare debate. They wanted a public option then, so a government insurance plan that would have bankrupted all the other insurance providers and would have led ultimately to where they want to go, single payer. But they didn't get their public option. Instead, they just got their mandate. They got their, their it's illegal to walk around in the country without health insurance. And now they're looking for that next step public option. And they've had a lot of success. And so I'm very much for incrementalism as it relates to parties. Now, getting back to the parties. There was a debate there, and I just want to play for you the uh, one of the opening statements from one of the people arguing my side that the two-party system is terrible. Here is what she said. With a couple of questions. So I need audience participation, and I'll fill those listening in. Raise your hands if you drink beer or wine. Ah, yes, a very fun group. Okay, now keep your hands up if you are, in general, quite satisfied with the choices that you have in the beer and wine marketplace. Okay, everybody's hands are still up. I'm celebrating with all of you after our win. And now, keep your hands up if you vote. Great, engaged people, everybody's hand is up. And keep your hands up if you are quite satisfied with the choices that you have in the political marketplace. Okay. Uh, oh, I see a lone dissenter out there, but otherwise those hands all went down. Which begs the question, why in America do we have 6,000 breweries and 3,000 wineries, and yet when it comes to our politics, we get to choose between what David Brooks describes as Soviet Refrigerator A or Soviet Refrigerator B? That might not have been a very Baptist-friendly illustration because it was an alcohol-related one, but take that to anything. That's so true. I have so many choices for everything. It's one of my favorite parts about being an American. My choices are just endless, except for politics, except in voting, except in the government. Then you have two absolutely garbage institutions that I would love to see be better and healthier, but they're not. They're not healthy. They're not good. And it's, it's a backward thing that we don't have a better system than that. And I would love to be part of working towards a, a better system that serves more people, uh, that, that serves more people in a better way. Okay, I have what? For like uh, four minutes left. I got a happy thing and a sad thing. Let's do the happy thing. Maybe you saw this floating around. I just love this so much. On MSNBC, with Brian Williams, the brilliant Brian Williams, who didn't lie about almost half his career, although he did. He had a New York Times reporter on, and they tried to do math together about Michael Bloomberg's campaign and how much money he spent. I want to play that for you and have some fun with it. Here is Michael. Uh, this is Brian Williams with a New York Times reporter that I cannot remember her name. Somebody tweeted recently that um, actually with the money he spent, he could have given every American a million dollars. I've got it. Let's put it up yeah. on the screen. It, when I read it, 
uh, tonight on social media, it kind of all became clear. Bloomberg spent 500 million on ads, U.S. population 327 million. Uh, don't tell us if you're ahead of us on the math. He could have given each American $1 million and have had lunch money left over. It's an incredible way of putting it. That's because it's not the right thing. <laughs> it's incredible because it has no credibility. If you have five hundred <laughs> if you have five hundred million dollars and you're gonna give everybody a million, so you have five hundred units of one million, if you started handing them out one person out of the time, you'd run out of those units of one million after the five hundredth person. And then you'd be finished because you only have 500 one millions. If you, listen, I'm not great at math, but I've been using this uh, app lately called Elevate. It's supposed to help people like me as I age for our minds to stay sharp. And they're teaching me how to do math better in my head. But I think I could have nailed this one because if even in my head, what do they teach me? Take off the zeros. So if it's uh, 500 million, there's 327 million Americans. So what is that? Uh, $15, buck fifty. It's but uh, where, where do I put the decimal? It's a buck fifty. It's like a buck fifty. If you spread out the five hundred million, that's what it would have been. But that's not the that is not the math that these very highly educated people did on air. Here is just a little bit a little bit left of that conversation. It's an incredible way of putting it. It's true. It's disturbing. It's, <laughs> she said it's true. <laughs> it's not true. It's disturbing that you guys didn't know that an entire MSNBC staff couldn't catch a very simple math error. And I just, it just made me so happy. Couldn't we all use some more jocularity in life in these very uncertain times? All right, we've got to finish the show. I do want to reemphasize, hey, let's be the people of peace, power, love, and a sound mind in a very unsure world. And don't forget, I'll be preaching Easter at Beachwood Church, also March 22nd at Cornerstone Fellowship in Waynesville. Would love to have you there. Reach the show on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. You can also reach it at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. Until next time, everybody, peace and love.